From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. President Biden says he will not extend the deadline to remove forces from Afghanistan. Biden previously considered a longer time frame to withdraw U.S. troops from the area. But Defense Secretary John Kirby says the White House will stick with its goal of completely withdrawing by August 31st. The Associated Press reports that the Taliban will not accept extensions to the deadline. To help meet that August 31st deadline, the White House is deploying more federal civilian employees to handle logistic, logistical issues withdrawing from Afghanistan. GovExec reports that the State Department is significantly increasing the number of domestic employees dedicated to that initiative. The Department of Homeland Security is also seeking volunteers to support the withdrawal. The Navy has a new acting undersecretary. Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro has picked Meredith Berger to perform the duties of that role starting today. Berger currently serves as Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Energy, Installations and Environment. She previously served as Deputy Chief of Staff to the Navy Secretary. The Army is working on a laser prototype that can take down drones in midair. The service plans to field four laser-equipped combat vehicles in fiscal year 2022. Retired Army Major General John Ferrari is visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's the former Director of Program Analysis and Evaluation for the Army. General, welcome. Thank you very much. So describe this laser weapon for us. What, what does it shoot down? How far can it shoot? Well, this is significant for the Army. The uh, Navy and the Air Force have been experimenting with lasers for a long time. And of course, they have the advantage of uh, a lot of power on their platforms. The Army has been limited in using lasers because it's been hard to, tra to, to transport on the battlefield the amount of power needed to use the lasers. So the fact that the Army is now able to put a laser on a striker with the power needed to use it uh, could be, uh, could, could be very important to future warfare. You say very import, important to future warfare. Does this weapon alter the nature of war for the DOD? So I think it may alter, the, it may portend the altering of future war across, uh, across all nations, right? Because if the army can solve for power, then so can other nations. Right now, lasers have been the purview of big nation states. Think the Chinese, the United States, and their high-end parts of their military. So as you solve for power, think proliferation across the battlefield. And so now lasers can be used not just by the U.S. Army. The U.S. Army may have a monopoly on it for a couple of years, but it will quickly proliferate on the battlefield and also into the hands of our adversaries. And when you say our adversaries, are we talking about, I mean, how expensive and easy to get would this weapon be? Are we talking about terrorist groups, um, insurgents groups? So I would say right now that uh, it's probably lower end nation states because you're still talking about carting around these weapons in vehicles. However, comma, the, uh, the ability for to, to solve for power and the speed at which technology is advancing, these could become, think Star Trek, where people have phasers and other lasers on the battlefield. Um, you know, we said that they can shoot down drones. Could they eventually shoot down jets? 
So I think that, uh, you know, those are ground to air lasers that can shoot down drones. And yes, they'll be able to shoot down jets, but, but think then also ground to ground or air to ground. So think of if you can solve for power in a vehicle, uh, right now we, we look at the, the proliferation of drones across the battlefield. They can only deliver kinetic munitions. Uh, think in the future, if we can get power down enough, then you can arm a drone that can fly anywhere in the world with a laser weapon. And as it was noted uh, by the Army, the, the thing about laser weapons is they have unlimited munitions. Right now, uh, the drones that can fly autonomously or under remote control from, from anybody is limited to its TNT tonnage, right? If you put lasers on there, they could become much more threatening uh, on both sides of the battlefield. Well, you mentioned that the Navy and the Air Force are working on their own um, similar systems. How would they use uh, a laser weapon? So the Navy uses laser weapons to protect its ships. Uh, and so it has the, uh, the, 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 it is able to use the power of the ship, the nuclear reactors and the big engines to power lasers uh, to intercept missiles coming at the ships. The Air Force has been looking at lasers uh, off of big planes in order to target uh, things on the ground. Uh, but again, if you put a laser on something like a C-130, you can carry a lot of power with it. Uh, where it will be interesting is as the Navy and the Air Force go to more drone uh, aircraft, now you can look at putting some of these lasers on aircraft uh, because of the lower power requirement. Is there coordination general among the services or is each service kind of developing their own thing here? Well, so I would say there's tremendous coordination in the fact that this is, uh, has for a long time been basic science that has to be solved for both energy and power. And so the Army has been watching for many, many years what's been going on in the Navy and the Air Force. The Army has its unique problems that, that the Navy and the Air Force don't, as I said, is which is kind of dirty terrain, smaller vehicles have to bring uh, lower power to bear. And so it's been working on that part of the challenge while leaving the other parts to the other services and to industry and to academia. What's the overall um, goal of these types of weapons? What, what do you see as the end state? What's coming next? Well, what's coming next for the Army is a air defense system uh, on a mobile vehicle. But that, that then becomes uh, the tipping point, perhaps, towards using lasers for not just for counter uh, counter drone or, or counter air, but also to kill things on the ground, but also potentially more importantly, communications. Because if you can use lasers between ground and satellites, uh, you can really establish communications links that uh, heretofore have not been possible. All right, well, General, very good. Uh, nice talking to you and thank you for joining us on the program. Thank you very much. Coming up, why money isn't the only solution for Pentagon reform. Next on Government Matters, analyzing the latest on the defense budget request. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
The Senate Armed Services Committee voted 24 to 1 against the White House's budget request for the Pentagon. The committee added an extra $25 billion on top of the president's $715 billion request. Roger Zakheim is the director of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library Foundation and Institute. He's former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense. Roger, welcome. Thanks for having me. So why is it significant that the Defense Armed Services Committee rejected the president's Pentagon budget request? Well, majorities in the Senate and House of Representatives, of course, are with the Democratic Party. You have Leader Schumer, uh, you have Speaker Pelosi, and of course the White House is led, uh, the Commander-in-Chief is Joe Biden, a Democrat. And the general approach is the Congress will follow the president's lead when they're the same party. That did not happen here, at least within the Senate Armed Services Committee. Remains to be seen whether the House Armed Services Committee and the Appropriations Committee follow suit. Do you think an increase in spending will deliver the force that the Pentagon needs, especially to counter China? You know, the, the amount that the Senate Armed Services Committee added was $25 billion, certainly a significant amount of money, but not uh, a, a, a contribution that is going to have a fundamental impact on the defense budget. What it did is that it made sure the Defense Department would be funded above the rate of inflation and just gets at the 3% real growth. Uh, that was not the case with, with, without those additional funds. That puts the Department of Defense on a trajectory where it can do more towards facing the China challenge, but by no means does it solve the problem. It just helps address the problem. What else does the DOD need then? You said it's not enough. Well, yeah, the, the, the challenge, of course, is how to go ahead and focus on the priorities with China while at the same time maintaining our requirements and, and, and obligations globally. Uh, we just have to look at the headlines today in Afghanistan, the chaos there, and you see how contingencies emerge uh, where the Department of Defense needs to focus its resources uh, on things other than its most important priority, which of course right now is the competition with China. Uh, so by making sure that you are at that 3%, 3 to 5% real growth, it allows the Department of Defense uh, to walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, critics would say, hey, the department needs to make tough choices. The reality is, even in a case like Afghanistan where President Biden wants to pull out, effectuating that policy requires more investment, uh, it's more resources, more troops to Afghanistan to realize that policy that perhaps in the long term uh, will require less investment there. That's to be determined. But it all reinforces the point that given the global obligations of the U.S. military, you need to make robust investment to carry those obligations out. Well, Roger, you have said that there are major changes needed to the way the Pentagon does business, such as managing its research and defense budget, uh, sorry, its research and development budget. T tell me about those changes. Where should they start? Well, a couple of uh, things come to mind. One is the budgeting process, and um, there are many voices who are saying this. I just agree with it that the process in, uh, in which the department follows to build its you know, 700 plus billion dollar budget uh, reflects uh, a process from the 1960s when McNamara was Secretary of Defense. No Fortune 100, no Fortune 1000 company would follow that process and as a result it leads to inefficiencies. Uh, similarly, the department's program of record does not uh, integrate new technologies in a fashion that reflects what's required uh, to integrate commercial technologies that the Department of Defense seeks. 
So these kind of antiquated systems, both on the budgeting process and how the programs of records operate, really does not allow the Department of Defense to modernize in a fashion uh, that allows us to build a 21st century force. Uh, those processes, there's authorities in place that allows the Department of Defense to do it, but the reality is it hasn't been done, and until we do it, uh, we're going to see more of the same and not the innovations that we all think is required. Well, you talked about the multiple threats at once, right? You've got likely counterterrorism efforts coming from Afghanistan. We have to counter China. How do you balance all that in a way that you can um, balance the budget in a way that the priorities are spread evenly or effectively? I mean, that, that is the question. You put your finger on the major strategic question that uh, the national security strategy and the national defense strategy the, of the Biden administration is really going to need to figure out. My own view is we need to be committed to uh, lead in three theaters in the world. That is Asia and dealing with China, that is uh, Europe uh, dealing with Russia, and of course the Middle East more broadly, uh, the threats uh, uh, in greater Middle East, Afghanistan being an example. Uh, and then we need to have a budget that supports those goals. It's something that can be done. Uh, the National Defense Strategy Commission said it can be done with 3 to 5 percent real growth. Obviously, it needs radical management inside the Department of Defense to make sure that we're spending our resources efficiently. My own view is that simply saying we're not going to be engaged in the Middle East or we're going to do less in Europe doesn't result in less obligations. Ultimately, uh, what happens is that vacuums are created and they're filled by adversaries, and the United States has to come in at a higher cost, both in terms of lives and treasure. Roger, in the, in the minute that we've got left, I want to ask you about China. What direction is China's military going in with their future force? What are, what are their ultimate goals? Well, you, you heard uh, testimony uh, earlier this year from the former Indo-PACOM commander saying that, uh, this is Admiral Davidson, that China really was seeking to uh, uh, challenge Taiwan uh, and uh, you know, the so-called Davidson window where China in the next you know, five to seven years could be looking uh, to invade Taiwan. And that was pretty eye-opening. So uh, that example alone reflects that China is uh, ambitious. Uh, their investments in the military are only increasing, even during the uh, constrained economic environment of COVID. And those ambitions go beyond uh, the, the borders of China that they're looking to be a not just a regional actor, a dominant actor in the Indo-Pacific, but also have global ambitions, uh, be it their presence in Africa and what they're doing in other domains such as space. Well, Roger, we'll continue to watch the budget as it moves to the House. Thank you very much for being on the program. Thanks for having me. Up next, should the Pentagon create a cyber force? Straight ahead on Government Matters, the pros and cons to consider for defense cybersecurity. We archive every episode of Government Matters on govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. The U.S. Cyber Command aims to coordinate cyber planning and operations. But a new military service for cyberspace would just create more bureaucracy. That's according to Jason Blessing. He's a visiting research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on cyber defense policy. Jason, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on. This idea of creating a service focused on cyberspace isn't new. Could the Defense Department benefit from an overarching cyber force across all military branches? 
Well, you're right. Uh, this proposal is not new. It's been around for a while. Uh, in my argument is that Cyber Command, as a cyber force that pulls from every service or from its service components, uh, is more fit for purpose than a service would be. Uh, it's worth acknowledging that an independent cyber service, uh, much like the recently created Space Force, uh, it has its benefits. You know, Cyber Command has operational authority, but it doesn't have the authority to train, equip, recruit, and organize uh, personnel on its own. It has to rely on the other services. Uh, but for a number of reasons, uh, an independent cyber service carries a, a number of complications. So do you think it's a good idea? Let's, let's go into what you think of that idea of, of a, a force uh, for uh, cyber. Right. I don't think it's a good idea uh, for a number of reasons. One, at the strategic level, it risks cementing the idea that cyberspace as a domain is the same as other domains and it has the same types of challenges that you would counter in the air, on land, at sea, or in space. Uh, it's not. The cyberspace fundamentally intersects and has interdependencies uh, with the other domains that you just don't see, you know, for example, with the connection between the air domain and the land domain. Uh, this also kind of assumes that you know the services haven't done anything historically or, or contemporarily to address uh, cyber issues. And this just isn't the case. They've done a lot over time, and you actually see uh, doctrinal innovations coming out of, for example, the Army with multi-domain warfighting, where cyber is a major component. Uh, at the same time, fiscal conditions right now uh, are really not conducive to building out a new bureaucracy, uh, particularly uh, you know, when we have budgets there are likely to be flat or declining. Uh, and really the bigger issue, and partic particularly financially, is what's the relationship of a new service to Cyber Command? And if you're going to have the two uh, alongside each other, that's even more financial stress on a military that's struggling with modernization issues right now. You do mention uh, Cyber Command. So talk about how that's currently set up and what the relationship is with the NSA. Sure. So how Cyber Command itself is set up is it draws from a number of service level components uh, like the other regional combatant commands or functional combatant commands like Special Operations Command. Uh, and what it does is it recombines those service elements into uh, the Cyber Mission Force, which has four teams. Uh, one that is particularly important for the other combatant commands are the Cyber Combat Mission Teams. So essentially, U.S. Cybercom brings in those service level elements recombines them and sends teams out to support those other combatant command operations. Uh, what's important about the current arrangement with Cyber Command is the commander of Cyber Command also functions as the director of the NSA. Uh, so you have this dual hat arrangement where at the commander level you can make these trade-offs between military operations and intelligence operations. Uh, you have a point where you can actually calculate and think about the trade-offs between those types of operations. Do you think that's a good idea, Jason? Should that close relationship continue as it is? Well, yes, uh, on two accounts. Uh, one, with a caveat, on the one hand, Cybercom still hasn't met the congressional requirements to actually separate from the NSA to end the dual hat. Uh, until those get met, it needs to continue. Uh, at the same time, until that happens, it is, again, a good point for this strategic trade-off uh, in trying to make sure that intelligence operations and military operations don't step on each other's toes, right? Military and civilian intelligence, those organizations have fundamentally different purposes, and you do see that play out in the cyber domain, even though a lot of the operations uh, appear very similar. Uh, 
the caveat is that in the long run, uh, yes, the the dual hatch should be severed. Uh, and the question after that is, what happens next? How do you coordinate civilian intelligence elements with these military elements? And that's what uh, I wanted that, to ask you, is, is how can the current force structure be more effective? What, what do you suggest as a solution? Well, there are really no good answers for that right now. Uh, and the issue is, uh, unlike a lot of other countries that have tried to move in this direction, uh, Title 10 and Title 50 authorities, the Title 10 authorities of the military and the Title 50 authorities of the intelligence community, uh, those are pretty high legal barriers to actual formal coordination or integration down the line. Uh, for example, uh, the United Kingdom, with their recently revealed uh, National Cyber Force, they don't have the same types of legal or constitutional restrictions for uh, reporting intelligence or military operations in cyberspace that the U.S. does. Uh, so they're able to actually integrate uh, the National Cyber Force under uh, currently a GCHQ commander. Uh, a similar workup like this in the United States just isn't feasible due to those Title 10, Title 50 barriers, which are in place for a good reason. Uh, but the, the question that nobody has a really good answer to and that I'm still thinking on is how do we do that once Cybercom and NSA officially split after meeting congressional requirements? The need to coordinate civilian and military elements is not going to go away once congressional you know, requirements are met. It's, it's, still, a re it's still necessary uh, and strategically uh, important to coordinate these elements and deconflict at the least. All right, well, Jason, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on. Have a great day. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you think of the show. Follow us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. You can get the latest updates and a behind-the-scenes look at our program. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News, on Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News, to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Katherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.